Welcome to Every Quarter, the voice of Andover, Phillips Academy's official podcast where we share the compelling stories and ideas of our faculty, alumni, students, and distinguished campus guests. Our monthly show features candid conversations on current events, academia, and Andover's connection to important matters happening around the world. If you like what we do, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a review, comment, and rating. Your feedback helps promote every quarter and helps us tell the type of stories you want to hear. As you scan the globe, what catches your attention the most? What are the highlights from a career dedicated to conflict resolution, peace building, and social entrepreneurship? These are some of the questions that John Marks, class of 1961, explored with the Andover community. Marks was, until 2014, president of Search for Common Ground, a peace-building NGO he founded in 1982. He is a best-selling author, a former U.S. service member, a school awardee in social entrepreneurship, and an Ashoka Senior Fellow. Marks sat down for a discussion with Carmen Munoz Fernandez, director of Learning in the World and instructor in Spanish, and Eric Rowland, pre-court director of partnerships at the Tang Institute. John Marks reflected upon his own time as a student at Phillips Academy. He recalled moments from his life's work and shared his views on the meaning of global citizenship and the state of the world today. Just as a note to our listeners, you will hear some sounds of a school bell at around 15 minutes. Also, the heating system created some interference in later parts of the episode. We hope this does not deter from the enriching content of the episode. Thank you for listening. Well, thank you, John Mark, so much for um, coming to campus. Uh, we've been so excited uh, waiting for your visit, um, meeting with the, the, our global ambassadors, um, with uh, program leaders, with uh, students very, that they are very interested in uh, entrepreneurship at the school. And uh, we're really grateful for your visit here. Um, we would love for you to just like dig right in and to, um, to tell us about your experience at Phillips Academy and what it was like, and uh, if there's anything that stands out to you most from your time at Andover. Um, well, I came when I was 16 years old, and I'm, let's say, considerably older at this point. And, um, but it was kind of daunting to come in in the beginning. Uh, there were all these cool kids, and um, I came in my, for my uh, junior year, my upper year. And so I, had, I was new, and coming into this place was just a little overwhelming. And it took me a while to make friends and to get to the point where I really felt comfortable. But I loved it when I did. And it's been a really good part of my life. I mean, I think when I came here, I probably... Uh, knew that I, I could make a difference in the world. I don't think I had to learn that here, but what I learned here is that I should make a difference, mm -hmm. that it was something I really wanted to do, and actually the rest of my life has been trying to find ways to do that, and uh, with some success from time to time and some not, times not so successful. And you're also a parent, too. Uh, I'm to a parent. Um, my son came here. He's the class of 95, and um, it was very good experience for him. He, um, um, he took a course his, the last semester of his senior year in filmmaking and TV making. 
and he wound up, I guess it was his thesis, he wound up making an eight-minute film, a James Bond spoof, <laughs> which was about um, uh, James Bond, or the, the hero emerging from Robert Pond, where he presumably <laughs> was in a submarine, and, ride, and taking away a beautiful young woman on his bicycle. And that particular film got him into NYU film school, and it's been the base of his career. So I'm really grateful to Andover, both for my own um, um, involvement, but also for having my, my son having found himself. I see this place as a hugely rich smorgasbord. There's a lot to choose from, and you don't ever have this kind of opportunity ever again where you have almost this many choices, but it's a great thing for kids. Absolutely. Yeah. You clearly took advantage of your time uh, here at Phillips Academy, and thinking about your life after Andover, you've dedicated your career and your life to building peace, to resolving conflict, to bringing people together. And as you reflect upon that career, what stands out to you the most in terms of highlights of your career or with respect to your vocational journey? and what it took to get there, to, mm -hmm. to found Search for Common Ground and the many other things that you have done mm. as well? That's a tough question. <laughs> um, I, I th I'm not sure that what I learned here in my American history course was anything but a framework or a place to learn how to learn. Because I, the, the whole ideas of peace building and conflict resolution came to me later. I mean, they came, um, I worked for Roger Fisher at Harvard. Um, I had an experience there. Um, later on, I was a fellow at the Kennedy School at the, uh, the Institute of Politics. And so the, the ideas that, that drove that came later. But here it was more just kind of getting intellectual depth, learning how to do things, knowing how the world works, getting a realistic way, uh, look at what the world was like and uh, you know I think it was very valuable it's not it wasn't vocational school for me I guess is way a good way to put it mm. you shared yesterday some insight into your experience as a social entrepreneur and I wonder if you wouldn't mind reflecting on what drove you what kept you going um, how you built that vision and then focused on uh, making that a reality? Mm -hmm. I think I had it a bit in my genes. My father started an insurance business that grew into the biggest of its kind in the United States. And he was an entrepreneur. Now, he, he had to leave college during the Depression because he had to support his parents. But the fact is, he had those entrepreneurial skills, and I find my son has them too. So I don't know where in the genes that, that lies, <laughs> or if you can isolate the DNA, but I think I, can, I inherited part of it. Because what I've noticed is some people are entrepreneurial and others aren't, and that seems to be a natural quality. I'm sure it can be enhanced by education, and you can take courses in it, but some people are good at making things happen and others aren't. And that's just the way the world works, and it's not a function of intelligence or anything like that. For me, what inspired me was making the world a better place. I really got that. Um, that's the non-sibbing motto of this place, mm -hmm. um, not for myself. 
But it became to me, particularly as I got into my 20s, a goal. I mean, I wouldn't have been happy with myself if I had gone into my father's business, which he wanted me to do and was bribing me to try to do and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. I just didn't want to do that. And it wasn't who I was. It didn't feel right. And I was lucky enough to have a background and have enough impetus, uh, some family support, some family non-support at the same time, and to be able to do it and pull it off. And you ended up being a, a citizen of the world, mm-hmm. which is one of the, the, the themes, you know, the, the theme of um, citizenship animates uh, Philips Academy programming during this school year. Uh, especially with the campaign, and it's something that we've been discussing quite a bit with the global ambassadors, which is the especially global citizenship. And um, I wonder if you can tell us your reflections on on global citizenship. What are the core messages that the young people at the school and beyond ought to hear and embrace? Well, I think we're all citizens of the world. I mean, we're Americans too, and you know, there's a there's a patriotism and a loyalty about that. But global concerns are, are hugely important, and today, uh, even more so because problems are global. Uh, you can't deal with global warming or resource scarcity or anything like that on the basis of one country. And it's, you know, it's great. When I came here, um, Andover was not a place where there were huge numbers of foreign students. I mean, there were a few around, but there were, it was very much a minority. Now, what are you, 25% or something are from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So it's, when I came, it was thought of to be a national high school. Mm-hmm. Now it's a global high school. And I think that's very important and good, and the students seem to get that. The students seem to get that better than the adults, actually. (laughs) Um, Because the students don't have the problems of chauvinism, perhaps, that some of the the older generation have had. And that, to some people, gets in the way. Uh And, um, you know, by having programs where the kids travel a lot, uh, by having programs where you bring in speakers and people from around the world, that makes it much more cool to be global. <laughs> and that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I'd love to pick up on that idea of global and, and see if we can kind of scan out a bit and think about the world. Uh, as you scan the globe, what catches your attention the most? What, what gives you hope? Um, and that also what worries you as well? Well, my field, if I have a field, is conflict resolution. So I tend to see conflicts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let's just say we have our share right now on a global basis. Mm-hmm. Virtually every region has got big problems, and the problems seem to be getting worse. Now, I'm an optimist. You don't do the work that I do if you're not optimistic, uh, I think. In other words, if you don't think that you're going to find solutions eventually or deal with conflict in a positive kind of way, you probably go into investment banking (laughs) or some other kind of field. And it doesn't make sense to start an organization called Search for Common Ground unless you believe there may be some common ground out there. And I do. I really do. And um, that's something... 
And, and I think I see human consciousness evolving in a positive direction. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't evolve in a straight line basis. They're real ups and downs. It's like a, a roller coaster or a sine curve. And you, it goes up, it goes down. Peace processes are the same way. They never go all the way positive. Just when you mm -hmm. think they're going ahead on a, good, oh, a really good basis, they crash. Mm. And that uh, which drives me crazy, and I always know it. <laughs> but I don't like it when it happens. And, um, you know, it's those kinds of problems. The Middle East has gotten really awful. Um, there don't seem to be solutions. What's happened in Syria is absolutely atrocious. Hundreds of thousands of people dead. Uh, no resolution, really, that's satisfying enough to end the violence. And people like me can try, but we, you know, for Syria, there just isn't any answer that we found, anybody's found, uh, the governments have found, the non-governmental organizations, which I have found. Um, the Israeli-Palestinian um, conflict is, seems no closer, in fact, further away, much further away from solution than it was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, that's a failure of people who want to make peace, build peace, and the like. And so that kind of thing disturbs me tremendously. You know, I. We, I've had some programs with some success, but I, I really want more. Mm -hmm. And you have had, indeed, so many programs with uh, success, thank mm. you to your mm -hmm. social entrepreneurship. And um, I wonder, me as a teacher and uh, working with uh, students, if there is something that um, we, uh, teachers, um, can we do, how can we teach entrepreneurship to young people and uh, how can we we talk about the role of our uh, social entrepreneurship mm -hmm. in the world um, that's a tough one mm -hmm. because I don't know exactly the answer to that um, I think a lot of the skills are inherent in mm -hmm. other words in the nature or nurture they tend to part large at least a large part of them are from the nature mm -hmm. and that's not something that can be taught I think if the kids are encouraged, as they are at the school, mm -hmm. to be independent, to do things on their own, to take advantage of opportunities, those kinds of ideas, and to say it's possible. Mm -hmm. You can't do this work if you don't think it's possible. And so to sort of expanding that possibility, which from a pedagogical point of view, I don't really know which, how you do that, mm -hmm. but really having people see it. I think what, something that drove me was I really thought I could change the world. Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe Andover helped in that. This is a school where you get a sense that any, almost anything is possible. Right. And, um, you know, and there are all these role models and former presidents of the United States who kind of wander in and out and that sort of thing. <laughs> and um, so this is the kind of place where something like this can be taught as well as you can teach it, but I'm not sure to the extent it's teachable. Right. We, we are trying to, to give them the skills yeah. so they can, you know, when they get outside of mm -hmm. Andover, you know, that they are yeah. able to at least, you know, start thinking about these issues, mm -hmm. right? And to be aware yeah. of um, other cultures and, and respect them. But, um, but I think that every teacher here will like to to do more, right? To prepare them better, mm -hmm. in a way. So I, I think that we start with you, right? Bringing mm -hmm. you here, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
and, uh, and, and yeah. figuring out that it can yeah. be done right. if you have the passion, right? Right. I think courses on social entrepreneurship, having it as a, th a thing mm -hmm. is very important. Right. In other words, um, we tend to only think of it in terms of, uh, you know, a particular issue, but in itself it's important, mm -hmm. it seems to me. And having the kids in a position where it becomes a category, mm -hmm. um, where it, it makes it real, uh, and it's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're going to be brilliant, absolutely brilliant kids who can solve physics problems like you've never seen before, but are not particularly entrepreneurial. And they're going to be kids who are probably not able to solve those physics problems who are really entrepreneurial. And uh, I can't follow the substance of everything I'm entrepreneurial in. We've done stuff on nuclear area. I have no idea what's going on, except <laughs> I'm, I'm creating a space in which the conversation can take place. Absolutely. I think one of the messages that came through very clearly as you have been um, having conversations with students and adults on campus as well is around connecting to the world and, and kind of getting started on something. Um, what sort of advice or what kind of reflections would you offer on just getting started on connecting to one of the many issues in the world that, that need attention? Well, I think the first stage is to engage. It's to start somewhere. Whether you start as an intern or you start as a person with a job, but just to get started. I, I mean, the, the, the phrase I like came from Napoleon when he said, en s'engage puis en voie. One becomes engaged and then you see what the possibilities are. But without that engagement, you can't really see where you're headed. Mm -hmm. And that's a very important part. So you have to jump in. Um, though you don't want to do it in a foolhardy way or in a way that doesn't make any sense or whatever. But you do need to engage. And this is a time when you can engage. In fact, you get bad grades if you don't engage <laughs> at a school like this. Right. And um, you know, taking a bit of a chance um, is, is something that can be, and not punishing kids if they don't do so well in that. That's the, I mean, that's the other thing. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a risk because they want to get into college, they want to get good mm -hmm. grades, and they don't always want to engage or they don't have time to engage or whatever. But summer vacations, uh, schoolboy years abroad, those kinds of ways are good ways to do it. Mm -hmm. And you have made um, you know, so many changes and so many decisions in this past over 30 years that you've been working with uh, Search for Common Ground. And I wonder if you look back, what are the things that you're most proud of? You could hmm. go back and you... I'd say th th it, that's a hard one because there's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I really, I guess I'm excusedly proud of, is the work that we did in Burundi when it was mm -hmm. on the brink of genocide. It's a country that's next to Rwanda. It had the same ethnic mix as Rwanda, and it looked like it was going to follow the Rwanda genocide. Mm -hmm. And we got engaged in a major way as an organization, and people seem to credit us for having played a key role in getting them back from the edge of genocide. So a lot of people lived because of that. And then there were some uh, things like 
before the Israelis and the Jordanians negotiated their peace treaty. We had generals coming together from both sides, retired generals who worked at the details. Mm -hmm. And we were about six months in front of the official process, which is about where you want to be. You don't want to be too far ahead Mm -hmm. because then you're just a crazy idealist. And if the governments are doing what you're doing, there's not much point in your doing it. Mm -hmm. So we uh, did that and what the generals came up with was was winding up on the, the desk of the Israeli Prime Minister and the Jordanian King. And we played a real part. Now, you don't know if, what they would have happened if we hadn't done it, but, mm-hmm. but it was a really good thing. And I, I've got a few like that um, that I'm hugely proud of. Um, you know, over the years, uh, you know, things get accomplished and the like. And the reason I think that we were able to grow from two people to 600 people was we had occasional successes. And not only have you grown in terms of size and your uh, outreach and ability to connect to different issues around the world, um, I wonder, as you reflect on the work of Search for Common Ground, how has the institution evolved over those 30-plus years? Right. Well, I have to say it was probably more fun when there were about five people. (laughs) (laughs) Because one didn't have let us say, the bureaucratic limitations. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, and it's not that I'm against having a bureaucracy. You need to have an HR department, Mm -hmm. a finance department, Mm -hmm. an employee's manual, and give people pensions and, uh, you know, benefits and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But the administering of that stuff isn't nearly as much to me as interesting as the doing of the projects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the big evolution was that by growing so big, by having 600 people, we had to put so much more attention on the the administration and the Mm -hmm. management of of the organization, which wasn't what I was so good at and not where I wanted to be spending my time. And that probably wasn't as much fun as starting a groovy project and from scratch (laughs) or doing something or going off. And so one way I kept my sanity during those years is I always kept a couple of projects which I did myself. Mm -hmm. That might have been bad management. They may not have taught it that way at Harvard Business School, (laughs) but it kept me sane. So I, I did the stuff on Iran myself, mm. uh, and uh, I was my own program officer. Wow. And um, that I recommend that to people. I think your headmaster uh, does a, a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and has the approach that Search for Common Ground has taken to building peace and resolving conflict, has that evolved or changed over those 30 years, or is it still at its core resonant with what it was three decades ago. At its core is an idea of understand the differences and act on the commonalities. And that's been constant. What we've gotten is much more sophisticated uh, in implementing that Mm -hmm. and coming up with methodology. 
And um, that's the fun of getting older and more experienced. Mm -hmm. there, there are other things that aren't as much fun, yes. like getting older. Though <laughs> <laughs> no, I like it because I, I, I wish I, I were 20 years old with the knowledge I have now. <laughs> but that Your is next it. project is to yes. work on that. Yes. Um, my squash game would be better. <laughs> but um, at the core is that idea. But I've been able to essentially implement things on a much broader scale um, as we've gotten bigger. Mm -hmm. And that was one reason why we, had, we went for the growth that we went. When you only have five people in an organization, you can't do big projects. Right. And I saw that if I wanted to change the world, I was going to have to do big projects. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean you wanted just people for the sake of people. Mm -hmm. We produced about 350 episodes of television, and we had two people working full time on that. Oh. Now, a lot of local Amazing. partners, a lot mm -hmm. of part time yes. things, but two people working full time. So we were conserving resources at the same time. But we needed people. Mm -hmm. You, you mm -hmm. couldn't just do that one off the seat of your pants. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Mm. And your story, the, the search for common ground story, is uh, fascinating because of what you would describe and how it changed. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the role of your wife when she came uh, on board and then she became yeah. your life partner. And did she did she share your vision when you started? Because it sounds like it was like a, a, a perfect yeah. match. I, I met my wife in South Africa about 10 years after the organization had started. And during those 10 years, we, sort of, we pretty much were going along on a level basis. Uh, uh, we had gotten to, a, a, I think there were about four or five employees. There might have been as many as 10. And we had leveled off. There's no question about it. After I met my wife, Susan, and she joined the organization, we started to grow at the rate of 20% a year. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and that wasn't a coincidence. <laughs> uh, she brought qualities in that I didn't have, and I have qualities she doesn't have. And the combination made us, a, I think, a very powerful leadership team. Mm -hmm. And uh, it gave me a chance to do what I really want to do in the world much better and um, it also gave us something to talk about in our relationship. We had other things too, clearly. And that was a pleasure. It made life much better. And we she was a South African. And I met her in South Africa during the transition from apartheid to democracy. And one reason the or our organization has projects in 15 African countries is that mm -hmm. happened to be where mm -hmm. she came from. Mm -hmm. Of course. Uh, if she had been, you know, a, from Latin America, mm -hmm. maybe we'd have a different mix at this point. <laughs> of course, yeah. Because there was no master plan on where we were going. We, we opened up to targets of opportunity. But I had seen the South African peace process in action. Um, I had been down there during it. We did a television series called South Africa Searches for Common Ground, mm -hmm. uh, which was hugely popular. And um, South Africa, at the time particularly, was leading the world in the field of conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. And I learned an incredible amount because they got through a transition using the mechanisms, the work that I and others had been doing. In other words, we didn't do it, mm -hmm. but they were, they were using our, the met same methodology as we were. 
And when the world thought that South Africa was going to end up in a Holocaust, which was the, every reasonable so-called person thought that it's no way South Africa can solve its problems peacefully. Okay. And suddenly, over a course of three or four years, South Africa solved its problems um, peacefully by using the methodology that people like me had been trying to find ways <laughs> to apply. And it was a huge boost because it showed it worked. <laughs> and we weren't 100% sure that it really would work. Mm -hmm. And I saw it work there. Another example of that is, is Northern Ireland. But South Africa is the best example that I know in the world. Um, and um, my wife, Susan, was working in the middle of that peace process. Uh, mm -hmm. She was a, uh, they used to call her Ms. Police. She was working on the transformation of the police and communities and stuff like that. And um, I would go down there, and they had a category called the International Observer, which would, gave you fly-on-the-wall rights. And I was watching her work, and it was just extraordinary to watch her. She has facilitation skills that I certainly don't have. Mm -hmm. I'm more an entrepreneur of conflict resolution, and she's more a practitioner. Mm -hmm. And that's a good combination, too. You've alluded to the idea of media and its um, role in the work that you have done. I wonder if you could share a few thoughts around the importance of media in, again, resolving conflict and building peace. Okay. Um, I want to change the world. And I noticed that by doing a workshop or a conference or a training, maybe you have 30 people or 50 people, even 100 people, but you, you're not going to change the world too much by doing that, though you can have an impact on it. And I saw from the beginning that to reach the numbers of people that I wanted to reach, I was going to have to learn how to use the media. And uh, in my last career, before I started Search, I was a writer and an author. And my last book got made into a documentary by ABC News, um, an hour and a half documentary. And I made a deal with them, even before I started Search, that I would be able to go out with the camera crews and go into the edit room and watch what they were doing. Not that they would give me operational control, but I just wanted to learn. <laughs> and when I started Search, when there were only about four people working for us at that point, um, I had cards made which said I was the president of Common Ground Productions. Mm. And the people who make cards are not people who demand proof. You don't have to show credentials or diplomas. You just give them, you know, say $50, and they give you back a card that says you're president of Comic Ground Productions. Nice. And so I did that, and by, I think those cards were a declaration that I had started. And it was a, an announcement to the world, and within about two years, we had a series on public television, and we became a television production company. Mm -hmm. And so I saw that rather than try to spend my time influencing the media, which is a bit of a thankless task, I was going to become the media. Mm -hmm. And there was, a, there was a press critic during the 40s and 50s named A.J. Liebling. And what he said, which always stayed with me, was freedom of the press belongs to those who own them. Mm -hmm. And I kind of thought by our ability to do television, to do radio, and the like, that we could make a bigger difference than anything else I could think of. 
And so it also was my passion. I kind of liked doing it. Mm. And it was one of those things that I did myself. I, I ran Common Ground Productions myself. And I like being an executive producer. An executive producer is somebody who comes up with about a paragraph's worth of an idea and then finds other people to implement it. <laughs> this is um, all, um, great information for our uh, students. And I wonder if you have any advice that you will give to our students um, in Phillips Academy. Uh, what are the most important lessons that you should wish them to hear? What? the most important lessons that you would wish them to hear? That, that it's possible to do stuff. Mm -hmm. And even what you think is impossible can become possible if you sort of go at it one part at a time and you, you see how to do it and you bite off the things that you could do in the beginning and the like. And it is possible to do it. And this is a platform, a place from which you can change the world. Mm -hmm. And that's what people are in training for here. John, I have one final <laughs> and very important question as well. Uh, yesterday, you had the chance to play squash with John Palfrey, our head of school, <laughs> and John Roberts, our squash director. Was that another occasion for having to resolve conflict and build peace <laughs> on the squash court? How, how did it go? Well. For me, it was a cause of a certain conflict <laughs> because uh, uh, John, um, the head of school, was the head of the was the captain of the Harvard squash team, and clearly the squash coach uh, who I played with is a very good player. And I'm not bad, but I'm certainly not up at that ability. And I was afraid I was going to embarrass myself on the squash courts, and that. Wait, I didn't mind standing up in front of the students or whatever, but I certainly didn't want to embarrass myself on the squash courts. So for me, it was a bit of a conflict, which I got through. I, mean, I don't think I embarrassed myself. I certainly didn't win more than I lost, but uh, you know, it was good. And it was fun. It was a nice way to interact with John Palfrey for the first time, too. Uh, he's an unbelievably energetic squash player, which is not surprising because he seems to have the same qualities as head of school. Well, thank you so much for, for coming, meeting with our students, talking to our faculty members, and even entertain us in the court, you know, playing mm -hmm. squash with our head of school. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thank <laughs> you. A, re a real pleasure to, to hear from you and have the chance to engage with you. Thank, thank you, John. You. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so You're much. welcome. Every Quarter is produced by the Office of Communication at Phillips Academy in Andover and made possible by a grant from the Abbott Academy Fund, continuing Abbott's tradition of boldness, innovation, and caring. Like what you've heard? Spread the word. Share EQ with friends and connect with us using the hashtag EveryQuarterPodcast. You can also find us at podcast.andover.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Jesse Wallner. <laughs>